Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. The following was excerpted from a Zoom session of Dharma Dialogues, which was broadcast from Australia on November 8th, 2020. As it was November 7th in the USA, it was the day that most major networks had just declared Joe Biden the winner of the presidential election. The title of this podcast is Be Gracious in Victory. I invite you to join us for any of the upcoming monthly Zoom sessions, which are held at two different times on the first weekend of each month to accommodate most time zones in the world. I'm going to read a quote from Einstein. Political passions aroused everywhere demand their victims. I think it's important for us at this time to consider graciousness. We don't need any more victims in the world. And I know that the world is in a kind of celebratory mood and a lot of schadenfreude is going around. But I think that for those who voted for civility and for kindness and for righteous behavior and for dignity, then it's the time to show that as well and be gracious, right? Be gracious. Even if you don't think that it would have happened on the other side so nicely, no matter what, go to your higher self. Winning or losing, winning or losing, being gracious is pretty simple. And we know what it looks like. We've seen it so many times in history and even in our own time. We've seen it so many times when someone won in an elegant and beautiful way and was kind and fair and gracious. We've also seen people who lost in that same kind of dignity. So that's where we will lean to always in our own case, no matter what we observe on the world stage. We who love the Dharma, we're often misfits. We step to a different beat. We have, a, we have higher standards that we live by and they're hard sometimes. Because the passions, the human passions, the norm, will allow all kinds of revenge and justify it. And you can get lots and lots of people to justify it with you. But living in a Dharma world, you don't get to justify it. So this is a moment for us This is a moment for us to have a very calm and magnanimous offering to everyone. And there may be people who are quite upset by this whole situation. They may be furious and feel into perhaps their position and their fear in being gracious, right? In being 
understanding. Hopefully the thing you've voted for is that kind of understanding. I want to say thank you for saying that in the beginning, because I was going to lead with something else that I'm not going to say now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the point. And it was why I brought it up at the top of the hour, Um, just to set the tone. I would say for any, for any group or any person who's a winner to show graciousness. But especially, especially if you have a life committed to dharmic ideals, Mm. which is always looking for harmony. That's the whole point, is looking for a way to be harmonious. Mm. And it's it's often hard. I mean, I've studied nonviolent strategies all my adult life, and I specialized in it as a journalist. And... Staying nonviolent in the face of injustice or in the face of things that you perceive to be horrors and and suffering on earth, staying nonviolent in words and deeds is hard. It calls on all your strength, all your every last drop. And we often fail, and understandably so. We often do lash out and do say bitter, hateful things and think them. And hopefully we don't actually act on them. But even as people who love the gentler ways of life and the wise path, even we fail at that. And even the most amazing humans of history who have dedicated their lives and given their lives, literally been assassinated for their nonviolent stance, they too struggled along the way. You know, we don't demand impossible things of ourselves, but, but certainly in this case, we can find some way, some warmth in our hearts. Do you have a favorite tool to share with us about how, how you might deflect anger or? Yeah, I, I usually, what I usually say to myself is everyone's afraid. What they're dealing with is fear. Hmm. If you really knew someone's the fear in their heart, right? And the, and the so-called other side, they have fear in their heart about different things. We may disagree or we may think it's imaginary or we may even agree about it. But because there's that fear, it drives lots of behavior. And often it drives behavior in people who don't have much wherewithal. They don't have much support in their lives in general not much love, not much education. They're reared in communities that are, that are brutal. Any one of us in such a circumstance might have similar fears when we have so little information coming in that would counter the fear or even allow us to handle it. So I, I think that, well, the main way that I do see any person whose position I find reprehensible. I try to see the place in which they're afraid or they're so wounded, right? So deeply damaged. I try to find some, some way to feel compassion and it, it, I, I fail at it plenty of times. 
And why I'm saying be gracious is one of the things I learned in nonviolent work and in covering that as a journalist was that the only way there's an inch forward into a communal feeling among people who are on opposite sides of an issue is through conversation and, and, and through understanding of the other's point of view. Another exercise that I do sometimes is I, I ask myself to advocate the other, the other position, just like you would if you were on a debating team and you're just assigned the position you're going to take on the team, even though it might be completely opposite to your own views. Even just speaking the words. I was in a relationship many, many years ago with someone who I was convinced didn't understand a word I was saying when we would have an argument. I would think, he's not listening to me. So every now and again, I would stop and I would say, advocate my point of view, because I don't think you understand it. And I'd be really amazed that he actually could do it. <laughs> like He could really do it really well. And I would be so astonished because I would think, well, if you actually understand what I'm saying, how can you not agree with me? <laughs> but somehow he didn't. <laughs> so anyway, another exercise certainly is to just give yourself a, an intellectual task of saying, okay, well, what's their story? What's their story on their side? And it really softens everything. It really does. Also, talking about this today uh, in specific about graciousness and about holding to your values, because we probably haven't seen the end of the kicking and screaming. <laughs> so, so, again, it may stir up a lot of negative emotions, a lot of hatred in your, in your heart, uh, but that's what to be watchful for and to, and to just... Rest on your mountain seat of freedom. Rest on your Dharma mountain. Kick back, hang out there. I spoke a lot last night about the the way that we fret over things we cannot control. So a lot of what people now might be doing are, you know, a big obsessing about the next steps and the next phase and this and that and driving themselves crazy. When in fact... This could be a time of relaxation in a sense. So there's nothing, there's like nothing much we can do now to affect things. I mean, we can do things in our own personal lives, but in terms of how the big picture is going to play out, unless you're one of the Supreme Court judges or one of the, the uh, legislators or one of the electors or whatever, your, your movements on the chessboard are not, so huge you're just going to be living your life as best you can as kindly as you can speaking words of non-division and that's probably true for you and for most of us so to obsess on news and some issue in some misguided sense that we're going to be able to affect the outcome by our great obsession (laughs) You know, and that if you know every single last detail about it, you're going to have some influence on how it plays out, right? But probably mostly that's not true in this case, that, you know, it's going to roll out. The process will roll out and 
it'll have bumps and curves, but it will roll out. So to really know that as well, I'm, I'm asking for a call to peace of heart, a peaceful heart going forward. I did want to talk on your topic of graciousness and and having a peaceful heart and and somehow being soft in the face of what we may be very inclined to judge and uh, or that's how I'm kind of sensing it and and I want to bring it up because I'm currently working with adolescence with a level of trauma that is sometimes quite horrifying what they've experienced. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. just unfathomable. Yeah. yeah. And I notice, well, first of all, I'm not even sure sometimes how qualified I am, you know, if I'm doing enough or whatever. And I guess that's what I'm trying to See if I really grasp that. It, it, so you're actually saying that about, well, I don't know any other word to use, the perpetrator. I don't know any other word to use. It's just part of the language we use. Is that you're saying have some compassion for, for them? As you were saying that, I was reflecting on how so often we... We do have judgments about people, like I was saying before, that their lives were so constrained and so damaged and so without uh, love or, or any kind of wise, kind hand along the way to guide them. Often what that will create is a quite dysfunctional, rageful, and hard to reason with human being, right? Mm-hmm world has not been a safe place for them and so there's deep profound fear and distrust as you were just saying that about who you work with it occurred to me that that's another thing to really just know you've not walked a mile in this person's shoes you actually don't know and often we judge people by what we consider our standards which are probably pretty high in a world percentage (laughs) Uh, we have high standards not only because of our privilege, also because of our interests and our education in those interests. So to expect people to behave as fairly and as kindly and as wisely as yourself might be a bridge too far. You work with um, young adults, correct? I do. Yeah. So those abused young adults often become abusive. Right, older. okay. And, and the ones who perhaps were their perpetrators, it was, it's a chain that goes back and back and back. And that's what we see in the world, the way that the abused become the abusers. Right. <laughs> right. It's just how it is. It's not to say we don't stop them. It's not to say that we don't, we, that we allow perpetrators to just rampage around the world. We do our best to stop them. Mm-hmm. But it's just, there's just, there's an intelligence that would know that wisdom and kindness and understanding in conversation is going to go a lot further 
than condemnation and hatefulness and blame. So even if you have to put someone behind bars, which we do, there's lots of people who forfeit their right to be out among the others because they can't be trusted not to be violent. It's just how it is. But once they're there behind bars, it would be wiser, in my opinion, and there are many programs now, to have some kind of rehabilitation to treat them like human beings for once. I do agree with that, yeah. Yeah. So maybe your role in your work is always to, to to see a beautiful nature that's been harmed that might still exist in there. You know, a film that, that so, and I know everybody felt this way who saw this film, Dead Man Walking, it so touched my heart. It so touched my heart. Because I, I do get the law and order position. I do get it. <laughs> I understand that position. Um, mm-hmm. But what was so powerful, and it was based on a true story, is that the nun, played by Susan Sarandon, um, Here's someone who was on death row for having done something so horrible. And when you see the depiction, which was good in the film that they showed, obliquely, but they showed it, you understand. It's like, yeah, give him the death penalty. But then when you get to know him through her eyes over the course of the film, and you get to know why he is the way he is, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And help but forgive. It's like you just can't help it. Now, would you let him out? No, not necessarily, of course, but, or maybe many, many years later, making sure that that doesn't happen again. And and he was transformed through the love in her eyes. I bet. Wow. Yeah. So that's your job, I'd say, is your only job in terms of your qualification is that you do your best to see through eyes of understanding and see whatever sparks of light is there in that person. Call it out. You, you be the lure for that person to rise to their, to their best place, and you'll both feel great in that circumstance. Um, I went to see my father in San Francisco and he snuck out of his senior living to see me. And that was great. And, uh, you know, he's 89 with Alzheimer's and I had, um, kind of a wild childhood with him and, you know, he was sort of violent and maybe an alcoholic. I don't know, but I've done a lot of work to accept him for who he is and have boundaries and take care of myself. And I'm so grateful for that because, you know, here he is 89 and um, he moved into memory care. Mm-hmm. And um, he moved in, you know, on the fourth. Anyway, um, it, with the COVID restrictions, no one can visit him, you know, and he can't get out. So he's very upset. You know, he vacillates between sort of, I think being in his right mind is when he's very upset and feels like he's in prison. And the times when he's accepting of it, and that's the Lexapro, (laughs) you know, or whatever, I don't know. But it's very difficult to um, imagine. How, How often is he 
in the resistance? Like how often is he in his so-called right mind? I don't know, but you know, I try and call every day and mm. you know, his wife lives in the independent living part of the building and she can't visit. So okay. it's, it's just very extreme. And, um, you know, it's not anything, of course, he would have wanted. Um, but I have gratitude that, you know, I have a good relationship with him after mm. all the work I've done. And then yeah. he was able to withstand me having boundaries and stuff with him throughout my years. But it's, it's sad. But I think that, um, you know, of course, he's safer. Like last week, he was roaming around San Francisco, got lost and fell and some stranger helped him get back to the building. But um, you wonder. Well, it's, it's, as you're saying, it's safer. There's not a great alternative to what it is, is there? No. And we're in the time of COVID, so there's going to be those restrictions. So it's just another component of existence that's hard. Yeah. It's hard, and it's not as hard as it would be otherwise. It's better than the alternative. Yes. Well, I wanted to report that we... Yes, because we talked about it weeks and weeks ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, and maybe, you know, maybe he'll adjust a little bit. Maybe he'll make some friends that are also in there. They can see each other inside the building. Yeah. Okay, so he may yeah. have some comrades as he goes, and it might get better. I think you're, you, the point of relaxation for you is to simply know it's the best choice. It's the kind, it's the compassionate choice. Yeah. He's, being, he's being cared for. It's not easy to care for people who are going into dementia. It's super hard. Yeah. And, you know, and, and yeah, talking with his wife today, you know, sort of her relief of getting on with her life in a different way. You know, I totally understand. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, it's big. And you know, also probably no spring chicken. So if there's certain things about taking care of someone with dementia that you just physically don't have the firepower for. So, yeah. Yeah. But I hear you and I can feel, you know, as a, as a daughter, I can certainly feel into your, into your sorrow. He was probably very proud of you. <laughs> he would know as your father that he had an independent daughter, very independent character who no doubt he was very proud of maybe some resistance to at times but overall knows who you are or at least he used to and uh yeah probably knows the love that's there when he hears your voice so yes i i i'm sort of embarrassed to change the the tone here to go back to the election because you went so deeply um and so we can just, we don't need to go there. I just uh, was curious about this notion of clinging, of, you know, what your comments are, you know, the dharmic principle of clinging. And, you know, if you can just sort of talk about that, maybe it could help me a little and maybe some others. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, again, I think it's that if you live in a certain worldview where 
your adherence to certain ideas, ideals, and um, philosophies means your safety, your security, whether it's your financial security or your physical security, whatever kind of security, Mm -hmm. that you're adhering to that party line, if you will, is tied up with your sense of survival. Mm-hmm. It's, your, it's your, your very sense of survival, whether or not that's realistic, whether or not any of the things you fear could happen would actually happen. But because these, the feeling of the threat to survival is so hard, it kind of bypasses the rational mind. It goes into like the limbic system and it becomes a very deeply emotional response. So the clinging is almost a clinging for life itself, for like, you know, that, that if, if that doesn't come through for me, I and my family will be finished. And there's a, there's a quote that I've, I'm not going to get it all right, but it's something like, how difficult it is for a person to see the truth when his income is dependent on denying it. But you could fill in the blank, you know, that seeing the truth, if it means a disadvantage to you, makes it a little harder to see. People have have a capacity to not see things that are right in front of their eyes. It takes kind of a brave heart, in fact, to stand up and say, oh my gosh, though this is going to cost me. And that's one of the things we really admire, isn't it, in the world? What's one of the most heroic stances is for people who actually sacrifice their own well-being because they're standing on the side of truth. Thank you. That's very helpful. We're going through, you know, we're trying to buy a house and blah, blah, blah. But uh, I'm already grateful. As much as I didn't want to leave L.A., I'm grateful to be here. I mean, the pace of life is definitely slower. And I really, uh, a lot of procedures for retreat keep coming back to me. You know, stuff we do on retreat. Uh, I just kind of, in some ways, I just fall into that, you know. Mm. So it's just, it's nice to be able to... uh, Relax. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how much of that I can sort of incorporate and stay with. Yes. And how that, how that informs one's work and one's contact with the world. Your whole ner- nervous system. Like the whole <laughs> nervous system resets to a slower, a slower pace, a slower frequency. Mm-hmm. And, and it allows for... It allows for a different level of contemplation and reflection in daily life. It's one of the things I've been thinking about, and I talked a bit last night about it. We, we are going so fast in modern life with so many bits of information. We're barraged and... We don't have time much to just sort of step back and just reflect on the day or on something that just happened or a conversation we might have had with someone because you're on to the next and the next and the next and the next. And there's 
30 bits of information are piled up in the meantime. And you're basically mediated. A lot of us are just in media, on screens and in, like I say, and, and various bits of information such that, you know, when we have gone to the retreats over the many years, as you and I have done, and why, why they're so powerful for us is that suddenly you're plunked into a circumstance where it's continual contemplation and reflection. And it's so rejuvenating to your soul, to your, like I say, to your, to your nervous system, to your mind, to your feelings of warmth, to your feelings of generosity, to your feelings of forgiveness. You just get washed inside. Now, going at a slower pace in a slower life, you can kind of have a daily bath in it. You know, you're basically having a lot more space, not quite the same as a retreat, which is such an intense experience, but at least you have a lot more space and you start living much more at the rhythms of nature, right? You live with the rhythms of nature and you have a relationship to the natural world. Even if you're living in a suburban place, you still might be just walking around your neighborhood at dusk or in the night or in the morning or whatever, and you start to get to know certain of the sounds and the certain types of the birds that are out at that hour. And all those kinds of things become so rich, right? So rich that if you imagine stepping back into a faster paced life that you might've known or that, or that some people imagine that they would want, where it's just racing from one thing to the other, all you feel is exhaustion inside and a kind of mental craziness. So I think, you know, I think people can live in a normal pace like that anywhere, even in New York City, because one time I did live in New York City on the Upper West Side, and I was, right, I was living right next to Central Park. And I was in that park. I mean, anytime I went anywhere, I tended to walk. So I was always walking while I was living in New York City. And I would often walk through the park to get to where I was going. And I felt very relaxed living there. I felt really relaxed. It's a choice, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think people can also live a very crazy, almost big city life in the suburbs because they're just constantly filling their calendars and constantly filling their minds every second with stuff. So it's really wonderful. And you're in a circumstance that will be much more conducive to right. a different pace. Right. Um, yeah. Well, when you're not when you're not in view, because you're right. I, I recognize. I mean, it's ninety percent or more mental. It's you. It's you choosing. Oh, I got to do that. Oh, I got to do that. I got to get that done. I gotta, it's you choosing these things that you have to get done. Yes. But when you but when you're not sort of feeling yourself in the crosshairs, and when you're just not around that and other people who are doing that all the time, it's a lot easier to That's to decouple. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, because we're so affected by our peer group, just the pace around us. We're very affected by that. And, and, huh. and it can be a sense of like slipping behind if you're not keeping up. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's why many of us have so loved going to slower cultures where everybody's just going slow. <laughs> it's 
like Leonard always said, he liked to go slow. He's got a whole song called Slow. <laughs> he likes going slow. He'd say he has one, one part of the lines is, <laughs> you want to get there soon. I want to get there last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fast and slow can be, can be chosen. I was thinking, you know, all the things that we often talk about, the global warming, the pandemic, certainly political unrest, financial uncertainty, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago, any one of those would have been a lot. And it seems like we've, and I'll speak using we, but it's also mostly me that, um, you know, I'm aware that I have all these things on my plate. And yet, uh, sometimes they are overwhelming. And but I'm just I'm amazed that you know I haven't gotten too stressed out. I mean, I worry and I get stressed, but like I said, any one of those a few years ago would have been overwhelming. And now there's four, five, or six major things going on, and I'm just not sure if there's a, a down. I mean, there's a downside to it, but like, is it? Is it stress just we're always under stress or we're under more stress or are we just better at dealing with it? I think is what I'm wondering. And I'm a part of me says, well, I'm better at dealing with it because I acknowledge that I have it. And yet uh, I still get up in the morning and I can function fairly well and um, I don't get too crabby. And um, so, yeah, I, I just, I was just thinking about all these things that, is are going on in the world at the moment and my my place in them and and part of them and uh fortunately i have respite with with your zoom calls and with a few friends and you know i I have kind of my routine it keeps me i think on base when things are really bad in in march and everything was essentially closed and it sounds trivial but the one thing that was really upsetting was that I couldn't get a couldn't get a mocha in the morning. I knew you were going to say that. Make <laughs> my own, which was okay. But you know, the, the mocha is more than the drink. It's a little bit of socialization and yeah. just being. It's on my way to work, and then I thought about it. Boy, what what a what a first world problem not to be able to get a coffee yeah. in the morning. But yeah. um, I, I think I just realized that having some routine is okay and. I was missing my routine, so. Yeah, fair enough, too. I mean, when, you know, you're also deprived of so many other types of things that would have been calming and warming to the heart, like being with other humans and having dinners and all the things that we do, then even those tiny things become even more important. Yeah, it is astonishing. I did speak also last night about how adaptive we are and how it's sort of like, it is just one crisis after the next, pretty much. And yet we keep sort of adjusting. Like at the start of the um, pandemic, we, you know, we were all having crazy dreams and it all seemed like this alien world that we're living in, like apocalyptic movies and people having to wear masks to go outside and you couldn't get near another human being and all of that. And, and we just got used to it and thought, okay, that's how it is now. And, um, you know, I mean, it's still hard. It is. And I shouldn't be talking because now here we're very unlocked, but 
I'm quite careful. And obviously, uh, much of the world is having to be hyper aware about how to live that way. But I have observed that people are, they're doing it. And yes, and we do have all these other problems in the world. But I keep seeing this from a historical point of view, which is, this is what we got handed in our time. In other times, there were many, many times of history that were super hard. I mean, we don't have to go back far to get to World War II, which was really hard. That was really hard for a lot of people. But you go back to times of plague or or just ordinary life where people died all around you from infections. Someone got a tooth infection. Someone you love got a tooth infection and died. So much loss and change and uncertainty that was part of human existence all along. We have been assuming that we had a pretty clear run for, you know, longevity. And no, maybe not. (laughs) So um, it's just different. But it's what we've got. It's the nature of our time. And it really makes those little joys, the cup of mocha, a conversation with a friend, uh, something you read that lights your mind and makes your makes you feel like you're soaring has become very precious this has been in the deep we invite you to join us for any of the online zoom sessions which now occur two times monthly on the first weekend of each month and if you're enjoying these podcasts please consider a donation for the monthly production and hosting costs. The donation button is on each page of our website, katherineingram.com. It would also be very helpful if you can give a review or even just a rating, especially on Apple Podcasts. Till next time.